0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Senator Maisie Hirono, author of Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So one of the very first questions I have for you is about the writing of this book. How did you decide to write this memoir, and why now, and where did you find the time?
1: <laughs> I decided to write this book because... Uh, I wanted to honor my mother by telling her story. She has had two strokes and she's not able to talk very much or tell her story. And sadly, she passed away two weeks ago. And so it's even more poignant for me to be able to tell her story now and the courage that she had to bring me to this country. I did not know that your mother had passed. And after having read the book, you know, I think it
0: would be impossible not to feel close to her.
1: Oh, I'm glad. My mother was uh,
0: an amazing person. Truly, the kind of courage she showed. I'd love for my listeners
1: to hear just a little bit from you about your mother's life. My mother was born in America on a sugar plantation on Oahu, but my grandparents, her parents decided to go back to Japan. That happened when my mom was only 15. She didn't know anything about Japan. America was her life, but she told me it was like going back in time. And she never expected to leave Japan. Uh, She got married, but it was a very uh, uh, troubled marriage in that she was was an abused person. And so she took hold of herself and decided that that she needed to put a lot of distance between her and my father, who I never got to know. Uh, And so it took great courage for her at a time when Japanese women, if they wanted to leave their husbands, they would leave, but they wouldn't take their children with them. But my mother determined she would take all of her children. And that's what she did. Took a lot of courage for her to do that. And uh, I'm very grateful to her every day. You
0: have some really vivid passages, not just about your childhood in Japan, but what it was like to be a seven-year-old coming to Hawaii and America and not, not knowing how to speak English and your experience as the child of a single mother who is working long hours to support you. And those are such vivid descriptions. I just wanted to know how you, in the process of writing, were able to go back and pull out those memories. Are those always close to you? Is that something that you had to really sit with in the writing process to bring forward?
1: The whole writing process was really... About uh, being um, able to be uh, uh, to convey how I felt, not just uh, it, it, this is just not just a compilation of events in my life, but to uh, go back and I, I can really re- relive the, the uh, what I felt when my mother got sick and all of those um, moments, and that's why in what I do, I never forget where I came from and who I fight for and why. And so those experiences uh, are really a a part of um, uh, why I do what I do. And I'm glad that uh, they're evocative and, and they're descriptive in a way that people can feel what maybe I was feeling.
0: One of the threads that runs through Heart of Fire is this immigrant experience, but also how your experiences with your family, particularly the loss of your, your sister and your brother, affected you and affect your priorities as a lawmaker. And when we talk about family separation in particular, I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about why that issue in particular during the Trump administration was such a
1: horror to you. When my mother brought us to this country, she had to leave my younger brother Wayne, his his name was uh, Shigeki, behind because he would not have been old enough to go to school and there would be nobody here to take care of him. And so she decided that she would bring the two older kids and she told me that it, she had to decide whether it was going to be harder for the two older kids to stay back and then we would have to start school and it would be much harder for us. She thought to learn English and all of that. And, and so well, my younger brother stayed with um, my wonderful grandparents who raised me when I was in Japan. And so we did that, but uh, we had no idea. My mother certainly had no idea that the separation trauma would stay with my younger brother. And it was such a, a, a sad thing for her to, realize much later uh, the, the struggles that that Wayne had. And so these are painful parts of my background that I never talked about. I hardly ever talked about you know, my sister dying in Japan. In fact, the first time I talked about it was when uh, we were in the throes of that dramatic moment when John McCain uh, did not vote to uh, once again annihilate or (laughs) eliminate the Affordable Care Act. That was the first time that I had talked about my sister and her dying because uh, I would say if she would have had a better chance if we had had appropriate access to health care. So healthcare is really important. And then family separation, yes. My brother Wayne never quite recovered, did not recover from the trauma of that separation. And when I watched Trump, just in a in a totally mindless, cruel way, uh, separated thousands and thousands of children from their parents. It really struck me that we, we these these children are going to be traumatized in ways that we uh, I would say continue to have a responsibility to address.
0: And a continuing message throughout the book is also I don't want to describe it as finding your voice because I think you always had your <laughs> voice. You know, it wasn't a question of not knowing your own mind or having. Yeah your own voice, but realizing that disclosing some personal experiences in public, speaking more plainly to the press or on the Senate floor rather than person-to-person could have a large impact. And I know that there are a lot of conversations, particularly in the legal community, about civility, the importance of civility, and I'd just like to hear your perspective on both civility but also when it is time to stop dancing around a topic and actually employ some plain speaking <laughs> and yeah. dramatic words
1: perhaps i am uh, chuckling because uh, i for for a long time in the political arena i didn't have to be really noisy and vocal about the things that i did and the things i fought for i was able to get a lot done without being that way, because I also come from a culture where we're not particularly confrontationally confrontational or we're not particularly verbal. And of course, for women, uh, and that we have the added thing of, I think, uh, uh, being in a very male dominated political culture. So I pretty much uh, did my thing, keeping uh, my vocalizations to pretty much, you know, to myself. But I was a fighter. I always regarded myself as a fighter. The Trump uh, administration though, and he himself was so horrible and he was such a bully that uh, I, I believed it was uh, very, very important for me to speak up and, and kind of expose myself to whatever the press asked. And I thought it was important for people in our country to know that somebody would just speak out and, and call the president a liar a grifter, and admit a sexual predator. And he should basically do us all a favor and resign right now. That was in 2017, not long after he got elected. And I didn't do this for effect. It's what I I believed and felt and spoke. But I did get quite a lot of reinforcement just in all kinds of places. People would just come up to me and say, thank you for speaking uh, what we're thinking. Thank you for being the way you are. And so it, it did me, it reinforced me. But uh, as I said, I didn't do this for that kind of uh, impact. However, I certainly came to realize how important it was for people to hear that that uh, there was, there are senators who were there fighting for them. And you have now
0: experienced life in the Senate under Barack Obama, under Trump, and now under Biden. There's a lot of discussion about the workings of the Senate, the rules of the Senate. And I'll say that in reading your book, I did feel like I got a, a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain about, oh, well, this is how this happens. This is how relationships are formed and some behind-the-scenes politicking takes place. And that was extremely helpful for me just as a, as a citizen. <laughs> but what do you see as the most important things for the functioning not only of the Senate, but of the country going forward when it comes to our political system.
1: We're at a point in our country now where truly democracy is being attacked by all of these voter suppression laws that are being considered in state legislatures all across the country. So um, not to mention the insurrection and the president who incited people to the insurrection on January 6th, we have a leader in Mitch McConnell who says right up front that uh, we're, nobody's gonna vote for this or that bill. So we're facing a situation where there's so much to do that, that uh, uh, in order to do it, uh, we're not gonna get much help from the Republicans, if any. That is uh, uh, just uh, the kind of, of obstruction that Mitch McConnell represents is, I, I can't even tell you how, uh, how, that, how bad that is going to be for our country and the functioning of the Senate. The thing that people should re- realize, and I realize watching Mitch McConnell is that he, if he were a different kind of leader, if he said tomorrow, we're gonna work with the Democrats, we're gonna c- compromise on the infrastructure bill, or we're gonna work together on the, the rescue package, it would happen. There would still be the holdouts. There would be the Hollies, the Cruises, uh, the, the people who, uh, who have ac- no guiding principles that uh, reflect wanting to help people. They just want to help themselves. But it would happen. So one person, if Mitch McConnell said, we're going to do this, I think it will happen. But he's not going to say that. He's not going to do that. And that's where we are in this country.
0: Well, that is sobering. And just knowing the realities of publishing, I have to ask, when did you turn in what you probably thought would be the final draft of your
1: book only to have the insurrection of January 6th occur? We do address the insurrection that pretty much my manuscript had been completed, but we did reflect on some of of what happened. Because with the Trump administration, something was always happening. There was always a fresh assault on the body politic with, uh, with him and his enablers. And with the COVID crisis, I personally have
0: been concerned about representatives and senators such as yourself who have underlying conditions. You are a cancer survivor, but you are still required to show up in person for votes in D.C. Uh, and many of your colleagues will not wear masks or take other take other steps. So what has that been like attempting to do business, respect the quarantine when you want to go home to Hawaii
1: and then to D.C.? What's the COVID experience been like for you? I am very careful uh, about taking a test before I come back to Hawaii. I am very careful about wearing a mask. What astounds me is how uh, Trump politicized this pandemic and he lied about it. I took no responsibility for telling the american public the truth of this pandemic and to to realize that there are still people out there who don't think that this is going to somehow affect them or that it's not real. I'm just astounded and people who won't wear masks, who go to large gatherings it is uh, it is astounding to me. This is why I'm really grateful that I represent a state like Hawaii where people are much more uh, <laughs> inclined to Pay attention to these things. To care not just about uh, about themselves, but about their community. So, uh, most of the time, people here are wearing masks and they're doing the things that they should be doing because we have this idea of aloha, uh, which is you know we care about others. Ohana, which means that we care about more than just our own families. So we take uh, we care about our community. So I am grateful as I watch all across the country, all these people protesting about individual rights and not having to wear masks, or really maybe they shouldn't wear seat belts. Maybe they shouldn't do a lot of things then. Maybe they should go uh, way past the speed limit. It, it is just incredible to me that we are at a point in our country where th- this kind of police, th- th- this kind of a divisiveness, which by the way, I think it was always there. Trump really, really exposed the deep fault lines in our country on race, on so many other issues. And one thing I
0: don't want to skip past is our current experience. And of course, we have the country has a long history of anti-Asian American, anti-Pacific Islander bias and harassment, but there seems to be an uptick now. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about both your experience perhaps, but also what we should be doing in order to
1: support the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Racism has uh, never been far below the surface in our country. And of course, the systemic racism against the Black community is one that we have yet to face up to as a country. The racism uh, ex- that uh, is shown to Asian Americans has been with us for a long time. You see the Chinese Exclusion Act, They internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans. Uh, And so the Asian community, APIA community is is very identifiable as the other. And uh, there are certain things that that you can impose on the other and our country has done so. The thing about what's happening now with the random violent targeting of Asian Americans is that there is so much more awareness that this is happening in our country, this is real and that we need to address it, face up to it, and we now have a president who doesn't stoke those kinds of divisive hatreds calling the the virus the China virus or the Kung flu. We now have a president who takes responsibility and who has said that uh, we cannot tolerate the the kind of violence targeting Asian Americans, and he put out some very specific uh, executive memorandums to address it. And I also have a bill that will be coming up for a vote when we return next week. It is a very, I would say, non-controversial bill. The president supports this bill that would require the attorney general's office to have a a person, one person designated to review these kinds of crimes and to work with in collaboration with the, the law enforcement at the state and local level so that people get the word that Uh, They should report these crimes and that we get some data as to the depth and extent of these crimes so that we can address it in a way that is meaningful to prevent and to prosecute the perpetrators. Well, you and I are speaking today on April
0: 6th. So as my listeners hear this, that legislation may already have been submitted.
1: Again, I have to point out that we we were not able to get a single Republican to be on this bill. And when we do vote on it, it will require 60 votes. I am hopeful that that you know, everyone should be condemning this kind of violence targeting APIAs, but it's not uh, something that I hear a lot of Republicans doing. Well, being the Modern Law Library, I have to get to your
0: work on the Judiciary Committee. I probably have watched a lot more C-SPAN of the Judiciary Committee than many people. <laughs> um, but I think most of us who are listening now were probably glued to that coverage, particularly during the Kavanaugh hearings. And you spend a good deal of time in your book discussing that. I would love to hear from you a little bit about your experience with Kavanaugh, but also looking forward, Biden has already submitted a slate of new judges. What are you hoping to see from the candidates who come before you on the Judiciary Committee? What do you think are the most important things for a judicial candidate to have?
1: Well, one thing is that that, uh, President Biden has nominated 11 people who have very diverse backgrounds and experiences, but who are excellent, excellent lawyers and who will be objective and fair in their decision-making, which is not what we saw with the Trump nominees. There were so many of them who were not even, in my view, qualified to sit on the court and they were mainly, a lot of them were members of the Federalist Society, which is very conservative and, and they have a, a certain ideological perspective. And that, that was a major concern I had. I don't have problems with the judges being conservative as long as they can be fair and do not have an ideological agenda that they are pursuing and reflecting in their decisions. That, is the, that was not the case with most of the Trump judges. So he kind of outsourced to to the Federalist Society, including the picks for the Supreme Court. And you pointed out in the book that you actually
0: had opposed Kavanaugh's appointment even before the Christine Blasey Ford allegations came forward.
1: I had reviewed a number of his decisions, uh, particularly I talk about the Garza decision that came before the D.C. Circuit and he wrote a dissent that made absolutely no sense, but it reflected his ideological viewpoint on abortion and the right of a woman to to choose abortion. And and so that was one. And then another case that I think I was the only person on the Judiciary Committee who actually read that case, which was the Rice v. Cayetano case. It it was a case arising out of Hawaii. And and so, in both of these cases, I knew that I was going to question him about his position and why he, you know, what he thought about these cases. And and this was way before the Christine Dr. Ford came forward with her allegations. So, I knew that I was not going to be supporting him even before all of that. But what was revealing was how his, his testimony in that hearing after Dr. Ford, here's a person who had actually written a whole thing. I think it was a law review article on judicial uh, comportment, none of which he exhibited during the hearing, by the way. He cried, he accused the Democrats of some kind of conspiracy against him. And that that is why I think over a thousand law school deans and professors wrote to us saying this person, Kavanaugh, has no business. He doesn't have the judicial temperament to be on the Supreme Court.
0: The next hearing that you sat in on was for Justice Amy Coney garrett And during it, you wore a mask with Ruth Bader Ginsburg printed on it. That certainly was memorable to me. Why was that one of the choices that you made during the confirmation hearings?
1: That particular mask was made for me by a good friend in Hawaii, And I wore that mask to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was not to be in the face of anybody. It was to to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg and for all the battles she fought for individual rights, for equal rights, for women's rights, all, all of that. And I wanted to honor her by wearing that mask. Speaking of handicrafts, one of the
0: treats, I think, and I hope that I'm not spoiling this for any readers, but one of the treats about reading your book is throughout the book there are these pages with beautiful paper art with dried flowers or or leaves that have been pressed and in the epilogue we find out that you are the one who made these and you discuss how important it has been for you to incorporate art into your life. I know a lot of lawyers listening to this really struggle with work-life balance. So could you talk a little bit about what that's brought to you? And, and if you have any, any advice for people who are looking for that kind of outlet in their life?
1: One of the really great parts of my book is that it, uh, it, it's, it has photos of my mother's cards. She's the one who made the pressed flower cards and she grew flowers in our yard to incorporate into her art. And at at one point she wanted to teach me how to do it. It it takes tremendous patience for it to sit there and and make these cards. And she made them by the, I would say by the thousands and she made them for me so that I could. Use them to send thank you notes, et cetera. And, and at that time, back then, when she said, "Here, I'll teach you how to do this," I said, "Oh no, Mom!" Because I'm I'm more a potter. I do ceramics. And but then the thing is that I'm I'm very connected to my mother, and I I make my own cards now. So some of the cards are the ones that you see that are really sort of bumpy and rustic looking. Those are <laughs> my cards because I make my own paper to make my cards, and so it's all very. Um, I, I do that because it is really important for me to express myself and, and the, uh, the, the artistic side. And I, I, I love art. I think the right brain side, our creative side is really an important part of all of us. And that is usually not given much uh, time, but I need time. I, I make time to do that part. And I, I, and I have a really good friend who lives in Encinitas who has a studio and I go and pot with her and I make all kinds of hand-built ceramic things. With her, uh, I encourage everyone to uh, have that uh, that the left brain right brain connection going on, and especially now when the, the world changes so fast, I think that having uh, that creative part of ourselves is one of the ways that we contend with all the changes and everything that's coming at us. So you just have to make the time because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, there's there's always another law review or case to read and all of that.
0: <laughs> so. And I, I think that there is something very soul satisfying about being able to look at a physical object that you yourself have created. Yes, that's <laughs> that's been good for me and my mental health for sure. Ah, <laughs> but uh, what I,
1: do you do, Lee?
0: Actually, I took ceramics in in oh, college for, wow. for four semesters <gasps> until it became very obvious that it was just me and the ceramics <laughs> majors left, and they were much better at it than I was. And uh, now I do a lot of fiber arts. So.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I love textiles.
0: It's really rewarding. And I my giant know. stash of fabric came in handy for mask making during the <gasps> pandemic. So I've been making masks oh, for everyone.
1: Oh, and just now
0: yeah. uh, returning to being able to uh, <laughs> maybe make a quilt instead of, instead of more masks. So.
1: so one of the, we're all Zooming, but one of the, in my apartment, I have these art quilts. And, um, uh, and so people notice I was, in fact, I was contacted. It's amazing what people notice. They may not be uh, what's coming out of my mouth in these Zoom interviews that I do, but people notice what's on my walls. And I was actually contacted by the International Quilters Organization. And the, so one of them said, hey, that's my quilt on her wall. It's just <gasps> fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, I want to
0: thank you for spending the time with us to talk about Heart of Fire And just to leave us with a last message for our listeners, one of the things that really I think you can take away from reading this book and about your career is how influential people can be, particularly in local elections, local politics, if you get involved. This is going to be coming out, I believe, on April 21st, which is around the time of ABA Day, our annual lobbying event. I wanted to ask you, how have you seen people be able to be the most effective advocates with their representatives? What are the messages or methods that people can take to communicate with their representatives and really see action come out of that?
1: I hear a lot from constituents and people all over the country, but I do think that what matters is who we elect uh, for office and if if you really want to do something about who's making decisions on your behalf, uh, we really need to elect people who give a rip about your lives. And sadly, I see a lot of uh, members of Congress who don't reflect that, they don't give a rep. They're just sort of, uh, I don't know what they're doing there, frankly. And therefore in local politics, it, that's how I got started to, to find good people that you can support and then to to help them. These are times when it's not easy to run for office. And so that that grassroots support really helps and then to find people who run at the local level and then we, they get into the pipeline. Uh, that's one of the, the, the ways I realize that there, there are a lot of people who, you know, who think that they should press a button and send us their email messages and all that. I'm not saying that doesn't matter at all. But to take the next step is to get actually involved in a campaign by either I sending money or, or canvassing or whatever. To take, that, take that step, the next step. That will make a difference. And Senator, if there's
0: a lesson that people come away from your book with, what would you want that to be?
1: I hope that people can see in in this story the journey, and that we're all on a journey. We all have stories to tell. No, uh, you know, one of the important things is one person can make a difference. My mother changed my life by bringing me to this country, and I, I often paraphrase what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said: "We can all be great if we define greatness as." I am paraphrasing greatness as uh, helping somebody's life be a little bit better. So each of us can be great in our own. place. So be kind to your neighbor, your parents, whatever. We can all be great. So one person can make a difference. You are that person. Well, thank you so much to Senator Hirono for joining us to talk
0: about her book, Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library.
1: Thank you. Aloha, everyone. Aloha. Stay safe, kind.